Morning, this is David Bennett, and this is Bitcoin And, a podcast where I try to find the edge effect between the worlds of Bitcoin, gaming, permaculture, podcasting, and education to gain a better understanding of all. Edge effect is a concept from ecology describing a greater diversity of life where the edges of two systems overlap. While species from either system can be found at the edge, it is important to note there are species in the overlap that exist in neither system, and that is what I seek to uncover. So join me in discovering the variety of things being created as Bitcoin rubs up against other systems. Good morning. It's 9.05 a.m. Central Standard Time, 16th of January, 2019, and this is episode 54 of Bitcoin And... And we're going to get right into the news. First off is a Forbes article by Kyle Torpy. Um, many of Bitcoin's competitors are laughably unsecure. Yeah, well, no kidding. When it comes to the security of Bitcoin, the first thing proponents of the digital cash system will point to is the large amount of specialized computing power that is pointed at the network. They do this because it becomes more difficult for one single entity to attack the network for their own gain as more computing power is pointed at Bitcoin. Bitcoin's competitors do not have anywhere near the same level of security, which is why some of them actually piggyback on top of the Bitcoin blockchain in order to improve their own security. In fact, this security piggybacking now makes up 20% of the daily activity on the Bitcoin blockchain. Although the security issues around newly created altcoins were mostly theoretical in the past, these problems are now gaining more notoriety as real-world examples of these attacks come to fruition. What is a 51% attack? Bitcoin miners are tasked with the job of ordering transactions on the global ledger known as the blockchain. They're basically bookkeepers. And the permissionless nature of the network means anyone is able to participate in the process and no single party is in control of things. However, if more than 50% of the Bitcoin network's computing power is controlled by a single entity, then that entity is able to pull off a variety of attacks on the network, such as censoring certain types of transactions, effectively rewriting the history of transactions, or completely halting activity on the network. This issue is known as a 51% attack. These attacks are not theoretical. Over the past year, a variety of somewhat noteworthy altcoins have been targeted with 51% attacks. According to Bleeping Computer, the Bitcoin Gold Network suffered from a double spend attack on the order of $18 million last May. Bitcoin Gold is an altcoin that spun off from the Bitcoin Network in late 2017. Ironically, the key selling point of Bitcoin Gold was supposed to be the restoration of mining decentralization. According to the block, Vertcoin also suffered from a 51% attack last year. Similar to the Bitcoin Gold, Vertcoin is touted as an ASIC-resistant cryptocurrency aimed at preventing the centralization of mining on its network. More recently, crypto asset exchange Coinbase and Gate.io have reported that Ethereum Classic Network has been hit with a double spins related to a 51 attack. The full list of altcoins that are unsecure is much longer than this. Crypto 51 tracks the costs associated with attacking various crypto asset networks, and some of the long tail networks would only take a few dollars to take over for an hour. 
even though the networks are supposedly worth millions of dollars. Attackers do not even need to buy their own equipment to gain more than 50% of a network's hash rate in some cases. Websites like NiceHash allow users to buy and sell computing power on the open market, which means an attacker just needs to rent someone else's mining setup for as long as they wish to wreak havoc on a particular crypto token. Quote, If the hash rate for a coin, for example, let's say 100 mega hash, is the total network hash rate of the coin, and you can rent that much hash rate on hash rate on nice hash, then someone can effectively just pay however much it is, a few thousand dollars, to rent that hash rate and 51% attack your coin, end quote. Litecoin creator Charlie Lee explained on a recent episode of Laura Shin's Unconfirmed podcast. They don't have to buy ASICs, they don't have to buy GPUs. They can just do a one-time rental of that hash rate and attack the coin. Coins that are susceptible to this sort of rental attack are said to be nice hashable. At the time of this writing, 73% of necessary computing power needed to attack Ethereum Classic is available to rent on nice hash, and 40% of the necessary computing power needed to attack Dash is available, according to Crypto51. Combined, These networks are currently worth nearly $1 billion. For many smaller tokens, more than 100% of the hash rate needed for a 51% attack is available for rent on NiceHash, and no one seems to care. The weird part about the 51% attacks that have happened in the real world is no one seems to care about them. Ethereum Classic is still worth nearly $500 million after after last week's 51% attack, and Bitcoin Gold's market cap is still over $200 million after the $18 million double spend attack on its network. Quote, it's been days, said Lee during his recent conversation with Shin. The whole Ethereum Classic network is frozen. Well, the network is not frozen, but like all the exchanges have stopped withdrawals and deposits. You can't really do much with ETC. So what's the whole point of the coin if it's not secure? If I had NETC, ETC, I would have sold it. I'm surprised the price hasn't crashed. And I'm actually surprised too. Uh, Kyle makes some pretty good points here. Um, the fact that you can just rent enough power from NiceHash to attack these coins should it really should send bag holders uh, into their closets to sit in the dark and, and pray and possibly flog themselves for the sins that they've committed in the crypto space insofar as bag holding trash. You don't want to do that, people. So that's going to do it for Kyle Torpy's Forbes article. Next one up is about the Ethereum developers postponing the Constantinople hard fork and the price plunges. Well, duh. This is from uh, CCN.com, written by Josiah Wilmoth. Uh, this was yesterday, uh, January the 15th. The core developers of Ethereum have called for a delay to the activation of Constantinople just hours before the long-awaited hard fork was scheduled to go live on the third largest cryptocurrencies network. Ethereum hard fork delayed. In a statement, the Ethereum core developers and Ethereum security community said that they decided to postpone the hard fork after security researchers identified a potential vulnerability in one of the software upgrades. Security researchers like Chain Security and 
trail of bits ran and are still running analysis across the entire blockchain. They did not find any cases of this vulnerability in the wild. However, there is still a non-zero risk that some contracts could be affected, the statement read. Because the risk is non-zero and the amount of time required to determine the risk with confidence is longer the is longer the amount of time available before the planned Constantinople upgrade, a decision was reached to postpone the fork out of an abundance of caution. According to the statement, the potential vulnerabilities stem from e- <clears throat> EIP-1283, which introduces a cheaper gas cost for S-Store operations. Researchers believe that it's possible that had EIP-1283 been activated, Certain smart contracts that are already running on Ethereum could have become vulnerable to re-entrancy attacks. Chain Security has published a more thorough explanation of the potential vulnerability. Crypto exchanges, miners must upgrade to emergency software. Good Lord. Since the hard fork has been delayed, cryptocurrency exchanges, miners, and other node operators must either upgrade to emergency versions of their Ethereum software clients or downgrade to the previous pre-fork release. Failing to upgrade a node will cause you to become disconnected from the main Ethereum network since the Constantinople fork software is not compatible with previous versions. However, most Ethereum users, i.e. those who do not run full nodes, do not need to take any action and wallets remain secure. This is important to note because it's likely that scammers will seek to take advantage of the situation to swindle swindle crypto holders out of their funds. No new fork date announced. (laughs) Prior to the abrupt delay, the Ethereum community has been in good spirits about the impending activation of Constantinople, which will implement a number of upgrades into the cryptocurrencies protocol. In addition to preparing the network to better scale to mainstream usage, the fork will permanently reduce the Ethereum block reward by 33% to 2 Ether from 3 Ether. The fork had been scheduled to go live at block 7080000 on January the 16th, just hours from now. The last block processed by the network as of the time of writing was 7072694. No new fork date has yet been announced. Ethereum price makes sharp decline. Well, yeah, who would have guessed? The Ethereum price, which tra- had traded up in advance of the fork, plunged following the announcement, declining to as low as $116 US on Bitstamp from an intraday high of $130. And that's going to do it for the CCN uh, article. Next up in the stack is, uh, oh man, Venezuela. Maduro raises Petro's value by 150% amid ongoing inflation. <laughs> Jesus. Now this one, this one was actually from December the uh December the 3rd from last year, but uh I I've got to because, you know, we we got to talk about this. So this is from Anna Berman uh and it is on cointelegraph.com. Venezuela's president, Nicolas Maduro, has raised the reference value of the national cryptocurrency, Petro. The president's official Twitter tweeted, or yeah, the president's official Twitter tweeted November the 30th. 
According to major Latin American television channel Telesur, Maduro first announced the new Petro rate on Thursday, November the 29th, against the background of the currency's ongoing hyperinflation. The value of the Petro is now set at 9,000 sovereign (coughs) bolivars instead of the previous 3,600 bolivars. (laughs) It just gets worse. Oh, Speaking in Caracas that day, Maduro also ordered an increase in the monthly minimum wage by 150%, which is the sixth increase in 2018 and 25th in total during Maduro's presidency. Later that week, Venezuela also devalued DICOM, the official exchange rate in the country, Bloomberg reported Saturday, December the 1st. The national fiat has dropped by as much as 40% from 96.84 sovereign boulevards per dollar on November the 30th to 171.67 the following day. <laughs> Jeez. Uh, Leonardo Berniak, a Venezuelan economist cited by major Venezuelan newspaper El Universal, called the move very bad news for Venezuelans. He believes that the government is unable to fund the wage increase, which will inevitably lead to another price hike and yet again hyperinflation. To anchor the boulevard to Petro is equal to anchoring it to nothing. <laughs> Mm. The ongoing economic crisis in the country has been provoked by a shortage of revenue from oil production. According to Bloomberg's Café Con Leche Index, wow, that's a hell of a name, which tracks hyperinflation in Venezuela, using an average price of coffee cup as an example, the annual inflation rate in the country has climbed up to 200,000%. As Coingraph reported in August, Maduro made Petro a unit of account within the country, tying salaries and a pricing system for goods and services to the oil-backed national cryptocurrency. The official sale of Petro in Venezuela started this November with several top officials, including Maduro, purchasing it via the official website. However, the currency is not available on any major exchanges, nor can it be traded in pairs with other coins. Experts are concerned about the actual existence of Petro after a Reuters report on the nature of the state-owned coin issued in August that turned up little evidence of the coin's oil-backed reserves. According to the investigation, the Atapiri area, I'm not going to be able to pronounce that, A-T-A-P-I-R-I-R-E area that Maduro claimed was the actual petroleum center for backing the coin showed no signs of recent activity. Other experts told news outlet Wired that Petro was nothing more than a smoke curtain to conceal Maduro's recent failure to reanimate the national fiat currency, the Sovereign Bolivar. So that's going to do it for that one. Um, a, A note about this. It is my understanding and has been my understanding for a while that, um, the Petro is backed by oil but uh, not in producing fields. Uh, from what I can understand, it is backed by the o- country's oil reserves that are still in the ground. And the problem with that is Venezuela has no infrastructure to be able to tap that the, or those oil reserves. So the Petro is effectively backed by something that is frozen solid in, in the ground. Um, this clearly this could change at any given time, but I haven't actually seen any news from Venezuela that says anything, you know, otherwise, except for the fact 
that Maduro has gone ahead and, you know, changed the uh, reference rate of the Petro uh, through, uh, well, essentially through fiat mandate. Um, we call it, we call cash fiat for a reason. And this is one of the reasons we call it fiat uh, is just because at this point, Maduro can just call the Petro's value, whatever it is that he wakes up feeling like calling it. And this is uh it's not a cryptocurrency. Um, anybody who believes that the Petro is a cryptocurrency is fooling themselves. I, I feel bad that, that anybody's doing that, but I, I kind of don't think anybody really is. I, I'm pretty sure we're all aware that the Petro is just a huge scam and stay as far, stay as far away from it as you can. And thankfully that's, made easier considering the fact that I don't even know where to buy it except on the website. And as an American citizen, according to Trump, I'm not allowed to do so, even though I could circumvent that with a VPN and go ahead and buy some, but guess what? I'm not buying any of this crap. It's just garbage. So yeah, stay away from it. Anyway, that is going to do it for the morning roundup. Let's get into Marty's bent. Cause he's got a couple of really cool things to say. So this is Marty's Bent for uh, Tuesday, January the 15th, 2019, issue number 398, UTXO analysis, nearing a bottom. So he's got a couple of tweets up here from Delphi Digital. Um, It's a a tweet storm. I'll read the first two of them. Using UTXO age dynamics across market cycles, we attempt to time a price bottom for Bitcoin by understanding when selling pressure from long-term holders will wane. Our analysis suggests a likely bottom for BTC in the first quarter of 2019. See the report for detail, and of course they link to it. Second in the tweet is, this analysis expands on the key takeaways we provided within the short-term outlook of our State of Bitcoin report released last month. You can view our thread summarizing the report as well as the full report itself here, and they link to it. So let's see what Marty has to say about that. Mmm, you smell that, freaks? That's that's the smell of some high-quality UTXO analysis from our friends at Delphi Digital. In this particular analysis, the Delphi team dives into historical trends within the UTXO set to try to discern where we may see a bottom in this bear market. It's fascinating to see human nature played out in the form of hodl waves compared to price charts. In the future, our ancestors may look at this data to try to discern who we were exactly, the nature of our actions, and our misunderstanding of Bitcoin. According to their analysis, the Delphi team believes we're in the midst of an accumulation phase similar to the end of 2014, which may mean we're near a bottom of this bear market. Obviously, take all this with a grain of salt. Past performance is not indicative of future results, blah, blah, blah. If their inferences are correct, it seems as though we should bottom out at some point in April of this year, followed by a prolonged period of accumulation. Though I'm a strong believer in the idea that Bitcoin can can pump at any time if the surrounding macro conditions are perfect enough. All in all, a great read for any of you freaks looking to get more familiar with the nature of UTXOs. 
how we track them over time, and what the destroying of Bitcoin days tells us about market cycles and human nature. Uh, second part of his uh, of Marty's uh, newsletter is a very good point. He has two tweets from uh, Hasufly. You can follow him at H-A-S-U-F-L on Twitter. And he says, Today, many Bitcoiners think people five to six years ago were stupid for getting excited about low fees. But the same story repeats with Lightning Network, which some claim is going to have zero fees. The reality is Lightning Network fees will also be determined by the market and we have no idea how high they will be. And he's retweeting a tweet from Alex Bosworth, and and, uh, you can go read that for yourself. His second part is, just don't fall into the same trap of confusing the is now with the will be, or Lightning Network will inevitably disappoint you when you realize it's also not free. Nothing is. Oh, so here Marty is saying about this is, our friend Hasu makes a very good point in the thread above. We can't make the same mistakes we did in the past by assuming the current state of things and on top of Bitcoin are indicative of future conditions. There was a time when we marketed Bitcoin at the protocol layer as fast and cheap. Both turned out to be untrue as time moved on. More people began to use the network and demand for block space drove fees up significantly, rendering the narrative DOA. While the Lightning Network is in its infancy, we must restrain ourselves from making the same false promises. I myself am guilty of this at times. It's always nice to have the angel on your shoulder. In this case, our our cycloptic friend Hasu acts as that voice of reason urging us to look at history and tame our expectations accordingly. Understanding the simple concept of nothing is free in life should be a good premise from which to approach things. It would be foolish of us to expect the current condition of the Lightning Network fee market to last in perpetuity. There will be demand for efficient payment routers and users will pay a premium in fees to utilize them. As an aside, I'm also a strong believer that more people need to come to grips with the concept that life isn't fair. A lot of confusion out there because too many people assume it is or should be. Accept the reality of being born on a rock flying through space and act accordingly. Final thought, making coffee at home on the rig for the last four to five months has aged me significantly. There's something about prepping the coffee pot the night before that has me feeling old inside. <clears throat> me too. Me, me too, Marty. I prep the coffee pot every night before I go to bed, and every time I grind those beans, one of the things that I think of is during the night, how much of the aromatics are boiling off into the atmosphere? Because that's what happens. The best coffee is ground fresh, literally right before you brew it. And we won't get into the arguments of how to brew it. I will say this. I think we can all agree that fresh ground coffee that doesn't wait around for, you know, an eight hour, nine hour sleep cycle uh, is probably the best way to go. As far as the other stuff that we're talking about here. uh, Yeah. The lightning network right now. The Lightning Network is is either free or ridiculously cheap to use. Um, and yeah, nothing's free, um, especially well-connected nodes in the Lightning Network um, <clears throat> are going to be more valuable nodes than 
other nodes. And I'm sure a lot of people are going to jump up and down and scream about that. But, you know, there, there are certain fractals in nature that you just can't get around. And conglomeration is kind of one of them. Uh, as much as we try to decentralize, we, I mean, we can blow apart things as large as Southwestern Bell, or actually not even Southwestern Bell. We can blow apart conglomerations that are as large as Ma Bell. And Ma Bell, for those that you don't know, in the 70s, coming into the 80s, was the only phone company in the United States. And as far as I know, um, extending out into, uh, you know, a fair amount of the world. Now, that conglomeration was blown apart by the federal court system when they went through an antitrust case. And they were found to be uh, in violation um, of, of the law as far as monopolies go. And there's not supposed to be a monopoly in the United States. Yeah, I know. I'm laughing about that, too. And what, what happened? Well, it, it, the Ma Bell broke up into a whole bunch of baby bells. There was Southwestern Bell. There was Atlantic Bell. There was Pacific Bell. There was like, I don't know. I think there was like seven or anywhere between five and nine of these uh, companies that were basically uh, uh, Ma Bell uh, that broke up into regional, you know, they just kind of cut the country up into regions. And so the Pacific, you know, Pacific Bell would take care of, you know, California, Oregon, Washington, probably Arizona, Nevada, and things like that. And Atlantic Bell, well, you can kind of figure out how it goes. So what happened? They all conglomerated into AT&T. I, you know, I mean, it's, it, it all got shoved back together again. And I, I guess the only reason that an antitrust suit isn't being brought against AT&T at this point is because we have MCI. I think they're still alive. Um, and a, a whole host of other, of other phone companies that like Sprint, you know, the, these types of things. And <clears throat> since, um, since these companies are alive, I guess the case can't be made that there's a monopoly on telecommunications. Uh, the other thing about the UTXO <clears throat> set uh, that, w- uh, that was at the first part of Marty's Bent is, uh, for those that don't know, UTXO is um, unspent transaction output. That's what UTXO stands for, and that's sort of... Um, every time we do a transaction, like if we receive or send, uh, UTXOs are, are, are generated. And that's one of the ways that th- these companies that are analytic companies are able to track uh, a whole mess of data. And uh, you know, the analytic companies are not going to go away. We're, they're going to be around for a long, 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 long time. So just get used to it. About the only thing that we can do uh, to stop analytic companies from um, discovering all the way down to our identities. If, if we've doxed ourselves through a anti-money laundering or know your customer schema from a bank like Coindesk, uh, uh, attaching itself to your bank because you gave them your, your bank, uh, bank account number, uh, at one point or another, it's not going to be all that difficult to un- uncover who exactly bought Bitcoin, unless you bought it on local Bitcoin. And even then, I think they are actually having to do a KYC. So really, um, about the only, about one of the only ways left to kind of guard your identity is to earn Bitcoin through some kind of gainful employment, like 
you know, working for, I don't know, doing Photoshop work for a company and saying that you want cryptocurrency and, and you haven't given them your real name and they don't really care because you deliver on your promises to do X amount of work and they like what you do and they just send you Bitcoin and that makes their, um, their, you know, having to pay contractors any kind of tax on that, that ends up being their problem and, and not yours. Um, obviously in the United States, they're going to want you to pay taxes on any income, but if they can't find any, well, then there you go. But you, you take your life in your hands if you're, if you're going to do that. Um, in either event, UTXOs are a tracking mechanism, um, or can be used as a tracking mechanism to trace pretty much everything all the way back to the, to the Genesis block, which is the very first block that was ever minted in the Bitcoin network. And with all that said, that's going to do it for Marty's Bent. And uh, that's also going to do it for me today. Going to keep this one under 30 minutes uh, just, you know, just because there's a, I mean, there's too much stuff going on. If I were to, to get into every single thing that was going on today, it would take like three hours to do because there's just, oh man, there's a lot of stuff going on. Um in either event, keep your keep your wallet safe. Keep your keys to yourselves, and don't let anybody fool you into uh, getting your Bitcoin. With that, I'll see you on the other side. This has been Bitcoin and, and I'm your host David Bennett. I hope you enjoyed today's episode, and hope to see you again real soon. Have a great day.